Check 1-2 to my express crew, steaming into the second quarter of 2022. Q1 wasn't fun. Hyperinflation, a bear market, a correction, Russia's invasion of a sovereign nation, yield curve inversion. What's this version of events say about where we're headed? Might we see a dreaded recession this year? There's a lot to fear. Rate hikes, oil spikes, corporate profits disappear. Or is this just a dip, a bump on our trip, a kink in the line, a mere decline on our way up the chart, a chance to restart, rebalance, and refresh, a time to stay smart? with the Investopedia Express. If only we knew. If only we knew if we bought them or if that was just a dip before the really big dip. We can't know, but if we want to be market participants, we got to stick with it and stay aware. U.S. equity markets did kick off the second quarter with gains. And first quarter, don't let the door hit you on the way out. That was the worst quarter for stocks since 2020. You know the catalysts. Rising interest rates, stubborn and unpredictable inflation, the worsening situation in Ukraine, which has become a full-blown humanitarian crisis, geopolitical tensions, the inversion of the yield curve, plenty to worry about. But investors bounced back in March. The S&P 500 corrected 13% below its all-time high in January and February, but then rallied back 10% to close out the quarter. 23% swings inside an index inside a quarter are pretty rare. Here are a few relevant scores worth noting from the first quarter. Crude oil prices up 33%, the best first quarter since 1999 for crude oil. Commodity prices up 35%, the best first quarter since 1915. Gold up 6.6%, Bitcoin up 2%, the S&P 500 down 4%. Why did it feel worse? The MSCI Brazil index up 36%. Beleza, meu bem. Energy stocks up 22%. Russia's stock market down 29%. Those kinds of returns and that kind of dispersion across asset classes is just not normal. But these are not normal times. And it's stressing investor sentiment. Bank of America's research sell-side indicator, which tracks the average recommended allocation to stocks by sell-side strategists, has fallen for three straight months since August of 2019. That's a big old bear flag if I've ever seen one. And Investopedia's own sentiment survey shows that half of respondents are pretty concerned about recent market volatility. More than one-third are making safer investments, and 45% still think the stock market is overvalued. But isn't it when sentiment gets most bearish that the stock market stages a turnaround? April is historically a strong month for stocks, but the corporate earnings season is coming up and the expectations are pretty low. According to FactSet, the estimated earnings growth for the S&P 500 for the first quarter is 4.7%. If 4.7% is the actual growth rate for the quarter, it will mark the lowest earnings growth rate reported by the index since the fourth quarter of 2020. That was 3.8%. Now, we know the game. Companies guide low with their earnings forecasts and then blow through expectations with their actual results, hoping to impress investors. We'll see if that works this time around. But the glory days of blowout profits are behind us, at least for now. 2021 was the most profitable year for American corporations since 1950. Profits surged 35% last year, according to the Commerce Department. You can thank household spending and demand for that, which was underwritten by government cash transfers during the pandemic. In all four quarters of the year, the overall profit margin stayed above 13%, a level reached in just one other three-month period during the past 70 years. And corporate executives reap the rewards. An analysis of 2021 executive pay by compensation advisory partners found that the median total CEO compensation at the 50 companies that have already filed proxy statements this year shot up by a record 19%. In contrast, the average hourly wage in the U.S. rose 4.7% last year, according to the Labor Department. Not enough to keep up with inflation. The rich get richer. 
Still, the U.S. economy is relatively strong, so the fears of a recession seem kind of odd. Yes, inflation is threatening to weaken the economy, but the jobs market is strong and wages are growing. Not enough to battle inflation if it sticks around a long time, but workers have the reins at the moment. The Labor Department reported on Friday that 431,000 jobs were added in March. Make that 11 straight months of job gains of 400,000 or more. That's the strongest stretch of hiring since 1939. The unemployment rate fell to 3.6%. Inside the jobs numbers, there was even better news for key demographics. Women, for the second month in a row, gained a significant portion of new jobs. The unemployment for black women 20 years and older fell. The unemployment rate for workers 55 and older, that fell too. The number of people who said they were unable to work because their employer closed or lost business fell by 40% to 2.5 million last month. Remember, the Federal Reserve cares about two things when it considers where to set interest rates. Full employment, which it considers to be an unemployment rate between 3 and 4%, and inflation at around 2%, just a little bit higher. Check on one, big miss on the other. Still, the bond market is rumbling as the yield curve inverted twice last week. Remember, an inverted yield curve is when short-term treasury bonds have higher yields than long-term treasury bonds, which is a sign that investors don't have a lot of faith in the economy in the near term. An inverted yield curve is oftentimes the calling card for a recession. But neither a recession nor an inverted yield curve are necessarily an omen for a bear market either. Far from it. As our pal Ryan Dietrich of LPL Financial reminds us, the previous four times the two and the 10-year yield curve inverted, the S&P 500 rallied for another 17 months and gained 28.8% until the ultimate peak. The economy and the stock market are not the same. April is National Financial Literacy Month. Even though here at Investopedia, every month is Financial Literacy Month. We're grateful to reach more than 20 million monthly readers from around the world who visit our site, our social media channels, our newsletters, and podcasts like this to learn about finance and investing. However, millions of people still need financial literacy and guidance, but don't have easy access to it online, in schools, or in their communities. It is our goal to reach them. We're committed to extending our reach and resources to underserved communities who have traditionally been closed out of the financial services and information industries. We've created new guides to support today's investing environment, translated key resources into Spanish, and produced how-to videos for visual learners. In our updated financial literacy section on Investopedia, you'll find resources to help you become an engaged and educated investor in the ever-evolving financial markets. You'll also find resources to share with people in your family and community to help support their financial journeys. We wish you all a happy Financial Literacy Month, year, and future. And speaking of financial literacy, we just ran a nationwide survey of people of all ages and demographics, asking them about their financial and investing knowledge, their gaps, their expectations for growing their wealth, and funding their retirement. Here are just a few of the highlights of that survey, and they are pretty eye-opening. Millennials are just as likely to be invested in cryptocurrency as they are in the stock market. 38% say they own crypto, 37% say they own stocks. One in four millennials is relying on crypto to help fund their retirement. 23% of Gen Z respondents own cryptocurrency. 28% of Gen X owns crypto. More than half, 53% of Gen Z respondents, expect to stop working before the age of 60, and many intend to rely on Social Security and crypto to fund their retirement. 39% of Gen Z investors are getting their investing information from YouTube. 30% turn to TikTok for financial advice. If that's you, check us out on TikTok. We're publishing all of those survey results on Investopedia, and we'll link to them in the show notes at investopedia.com slash the express podcast. 
Let's get set up for the week ahead. It's kind of quiet on the corporate news front as companies head into the quiet period ahead of earnings season. Constellation and Brands and Levi Strauss are among the few notable companies reporting results this week, and both should have important things to say about the health of the consumer, rising input costs, and supply chains. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will release the minutes from its last meeting on interest rates when it hiked rates by a quarter of a percent. We know the drumbeat is calling for at least six to seven more rate hikes this year, but the minutes will offer more detail as to the size and timing of those future increases. The Fed's been pretty transparent lately, so we shouldn't expect too many surprises. And we'll be keeping an eye on mortgage applications here in the U.S. The 30-year fixed mortgage rate topped 4.8% last week, and that is cooling off housing sales, but not prices. Those continue to set new highs across the country. What if there was a simple and straightforward guide that taught us the basics of how to build wealth and grow it over our lifetimes? In fact, there are probably thousands of them out there already, and even more online that promise to do just that. The problem with so many of them, though, is that they are either too dense and complicated for most of us, or too simple and lacking nuance for others. Personal finance and investing are, well, personal. One size doesn't fit all, but there are basic rules that we can apply that help us set up the foundations for wealth building and investing successfully over the long term. No magic bullets, no proven formulas, but principles. Our friend Nick Manjuli, the man behind the terrific blog of Dollars and Data, is out with the book or guide I wish I had when I was in my 20s, starting to earn money and beginning my investing journey. It's called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth, and Nick is back aboard the Express with us this week to talk about it. Welcome back, Nick. Good to see you. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for having me on again. Well, I went right through this book so quickly, but it's broken up into sections on saving and investing, but each one of them you could take on its own but together, so valuable. What made you want to put it into a book? I know you've written about a lot of these things on the blog. Basically, I've been writing for almost four years at this time. By the time I said I wanted to write a book, and honestly, it was because of COVID. Like I was trapped inside. This was December 2020, and you know, I I thought COVID was over after the first wave in New York. I was here in New York City. And I'm like, oh, it's over now, right? We flattened the curve. I was wrong. Then I thought, oh, then after the May, the big May, like Memorial Day jump and all that, after that summer jump and the rest of the states, I was like, oh, it's done now, right? And it wasn't. And then December 2020, we had this big wave across the country. And I was like, this thing's going to last forever. Like, I need to use this time properly. And so I said, I think I have enough material out there. And I think I just need to organize it properly. And I can put together something useful for people. Yeah, it is super useful. And like I said, I wish I had it in my 20s or somebody said, follow these steps. And again, it's not a magic formula, but there are those basic principles and you start it with the title, Just Keep Buying. I want to get into that in a second. But also, you, you started off talking about your grandpa. And I think we talked about him on the last time we had you on the show. He loved the ponies. He loved to gamble and ended up not doing so well. Give us the, the background on that and why that may have been an inspiration for you somehow to get into doing what you're doing. Yeah, so he had, he'd gambled for most of his life. And he he did start with horse racing. But then he started getting into you know going to the casinos and playing Baccarat and all these different games. I don't even know all of them. Pie Gauss, some of you may have heard of some of these. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it was kind of, it's not a great part of our family history, but it's something he did. He's a very nice man, churchgoer, great with family, but at the same time, you know, he had his demons, which was gambling. And so I saw that I, you know, as a little kid, I didn't really understand, but as I got older, I started to see it and he just, he got paid social security, his pension and just blew it every month. And it's really unfortunate because he could have done so much other things with his life, his money. You use it as a launch pad to sort of get into these basic questions. And the, the most basic is investing versus saving. What do you do early in life? 
When does compounding work the best? So let's take that apart a little bit. We get this question all the time in Investopedia. Should I be saving that extra money I have or should I be investing it? And it kind of depends, but give us the argument for saving early in life. There's two arguments here. I mean, there's the mathematical one, which I guess a lot of your listeners has heard. Money that's you know invested earlier in life, it's compounded at the same rate over time. You know, if you invest earlier, you're gonna that's gonna grow to more money than money invested later, right? That's a very easy mathematical argument. I think the second argument is more of a behavioral argument, and it's it's much easier to compound your money than it is to save money. And so if you were to save the same amount of money, let's say you saved, I don't know, ten thousand dollars a year for 40 years. And if you were to get like a 7% return by the end, after the end of that 40 year period, half of your portfolio value comes from the first 10 years of saving. And the other half comes from the last 30 years, right? So that shows like, if you do that hard work up front and save earlier, later, you don't have to save as much, right? Or later, you don't have to do that work, right? And so that's the idea is like saving money is hard, but compounding money is easy, right? The, The market just does it for you, right? So that's kind of the main premise there. And I think that's why I kind of talk about saving first to get people like into getting their save money and, but get that money invested. So you have to save, but also invest, you know, with that money. Right. Sitting in the bank, it's not going to do much for you, especially these days. But then there becomes the question of what are you going to put it in if you invest? And again, we get that question all the time. You get it at the firm you work for as well. But you realized, and you wrote about, you write about this in the book, it didn't matter when you buy stocks or when you buy into indexes or ETFs just to keep buying them. Why is dollar cost averaging such a magic formula for success? I mean, because the long-term trend of across most markets and throughout most of history is you know up and to the right. Like There's growth. We're having economic growth. And because of that, like that growth ends up sending profits back to business owners. And so when you're buying a stock, you're buying a share of ownership in that company, right? And when you buy an index fund, you're buying share, a very, very, very small slice in share of ownership in lots of companies, right? So you're kind of owning like the American economy in a way, right? When you buy like a S&P 500 index fund, right? So that's the main, the main premise there. But it's not just buying it, it's to continue to buy it and then to not sell when things get rough, except if you need to. It's so tough behaviorally to do that, Nick. We all know that. Uh, it's tough to hang on when you're watching things fall and you're watching news headlines and we go through these periods of uncertainty. Why is that uh, so important to not give in to that fear? The question is, let's say you do give into that fear. Let's just play devil's advocate. Let's say, okay, you know what? I'm going to get out. The real question is, when are you going to get back in? And that's the real issue, right? If you had some sort of time, you're like, I'll get out. But if you have rules to get back in, you might do okay. But a lot of people get out and then they stay out for so long. Like, I'm going to wait for the dust to settle. And by the time the dust settles, the market's, you know, 30, 40, 100% higher, right? Like, imagine you sold in like early March, 2020 before the bottom, right? And it hits the bottom. You're like, oh, I'm not sure it's over yet. And next thing you know, six months later, it's at a new all-time high, right? So before you could even blink an eye, you would have missed out on all the gains. You you would be buying back later at a higher price. And that's the thing, what, what we're trying to prevent when we tell people not to sell out, not to worry and panic. It's like, as long as you're sufficiently diversified, like you shouldn't have to worry about that as much. And of course, like in the short term, that's not true. But in the long run, you know, these things tend to even themselves out. You can have a bad market here or there. And as long as you're sufficiently diversified, you should be okay. You also say, don't worry about buying the dip yet. That's what we hear in the financial news headlines all the time or on financial Twitter or buy the dip, buy the dip, because you know, this may be the bottom. We do know this, Nick, and I've seen this through the great research you guys put out at Ritholtz Wealth Management. We know that the best days in the stock market are usually during those bottoms when you get these two, 3% bounces 
it's hard to capture those when the market's kind of grinding higher. But down there at the bottom, the dip, so to speak, is kind of when those bounces are, are the most aggressive. But why not try to buy the dip? Because we don't know where, where the dip is. Yeah, well, A, you don't know when it's going to happen. And B, let's say you just start saving cash to buy the dip. Question is your threshold. Like how big of a dip is a dip free, right? If you're like, oh, you know what? A 2% dip, that's not big. And if I'm going to wait for a 20% dip, well, like those dips are rare. And the, and the bigger the threshold or the deeper the threshold, the more rare they are and the more you're going to be sitting in cash and not being invested, not making money, right? And I think an example I give is like, I started blogging early 2017 and I actually wrote a blog post called Just Keep Buying, which became like the intro chapter in some ways for the book. And back then, you know, people were telling me, you know, oh, markets are too overvalued. We can't do this. Or I shouldn't be buying right now. And if you, even if you had saved cash from 2017 and you had perfectly timed the bottom in March, 2020, right. And you had bought perfectly on March 23rd, 2020, which is the bottom, you still would have bought at prices 7% higher than you could have gotten in early 2017. And that's kind of the point there. It's like, you may be able to buy the dip and that's great, but you could, that dip could be at a much higher price than what you originally could have got. You also say it's better to buy index funds and ETFs, or at least it was for you as opposed to individual stocks. The diversification aspect of that makes a ton of sense to me. I do that. But when you look at the returns for some of the individual stocks and some standouts over the past 10 years, Nick, several of them have handily beat the market. Here's just a short list. And I know you know these names. Tesla, up something like 14,000%. NVIDIA, 8,000%. Netflix, 2,000. Amazon, 1,500%. These are the big, giant, mega cap stocks that have done unbelievably well. You had to know to buy them. But if you had an idea that Tesla was going to be a successful company and you just bought that, why would that have not have been better than buying the QQQ ETF, for example? I guess the the thing here is like we have some sort of like selection bias or survivorship bias. We know the winners now, but like go back to 2014, 2012, Tesla didn't look like the stock it is today, right? It was a very different company. People thought it wasn't going to work. There's a, there's a lot of risk there. And so people we're not bidding up the price accordingly. So I think that's the issue. It's like you find companies that look great back then and they haven't done as well. So like you need to go back to then and say at this point in time, which companies look like they're going to be big. And it, it's not always the same set of companies. I remember someone's like, oh, well, geez, geez, in the Dow, they're a solid company. They're never, and they've been down, they're down very bad, you know, since that time, right? So it's very difficult to do that. So that's my, that's my counter. Of course, yes, people have done it, but like, how do you know that you're going to be able to do it consistently? I think it's very, very difficult to do. Right. So as you started investing in, in your 20s and setting up your portfolio, you obviously got familiar with the market. You now working for a, for an RAA. But how did you set yourself up in terms of diversification in your 20s? So I wasn't as diversified as I am now, but I did have just like a US stock index fund, like a developed and emerging market index fund, and then bonds. And I think I had a REITs. So that's all I had so far, but eventually added other things, you know, since then I've added some art, I've added some crypto and, and, other, and other things of that sort. But yeah, when I just started, I was just like, hey, you know, and honestly, the fact is, and I kind of discussed this in the first chapter of the book, it doesn't really matter what your asset allocation is when you're 22, because you probably don't have that much money to invest, right? So like I had like less than $1,000 to my name. So whether I was 10% bonds or 15% or 5% bonds didn't really matter in the long run. It matters a lot more now what my asset allocation is because I have more money invest. You have more money in the game, so to speak. So I think that's the thing to keep in mind for people who are super young. Like don't worry as much about that or people who don't have as much money invested. Like I would worry less about asset allocation until you have a serious amount of capital there. And then you're like, okay, like this is going to matter. So that's what I would say. And then there's Bitcoin, Nick, which is up a million percent in the past decade, according to our buddy, uh, Charlie Bellello, a million percent. Who would have ever thought that? But I guess there are some people that did, and they're pretty uh, happy with their returns so far. But it's 
pretty volatile. It still isn't backed by anything that makes any sense to a lot of us. There's no real fundamentals there except for the scarcity aspect of it. But it's here. It's here. Financial firms are offering it. Retailers are offering it. The investing base is growing every single year. But how should new investors, especially younger investors, think about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as a part of their portfolio mix? Yeah. So the thing I recommend is like, if you're going to do this, you know, it's it's very high volatility. So like, keep it a small percentage of your of your assets. And if you're a younger investor, honestly, it's unless you get very lucky and like have some really, you know, you buy some coin that ends up going, you know, 100,000 X or something, you're not going to build a lot of wealth there. I mean, it's really tough. And so 2021 was an exception because like, I know people that like literally just put like 500 bucks into NFTs and now it's like worth like a million dollars, which is like, these are very, very rare things. These are very rare, like luck events. Now I'm not saying all of cryptocurrencies luck. I'm not saying that, but there are moments where these types of returns, which are just unheard of, you know, like the first people to buy like the first Solana NFTs or something like that. They made a bunch of money, right? Cause no one even knew what NFTs were or what Solana was. So once you get into that, that's what happens. So my recommendation is like, you know, if you want to get into this, put a little bit of your money in there and you realize it's going to be volatile, realize you could possibly lose it all and just, you never know. And so kind of go from there. Let's talk about retirement. And I think the, the and you and I have talked about this in the past and I've talked about it with your colleague, Ben Carlson as well. The when can you retire? Is that even the right question? The, the retirement, when can I stop working? Or is the question really, how much do I need to afford to be me? the ability to afford your time to do what you want. What's the right question to ask? And how do you ask yourself that question as you're sort of building your wealth as you grow older? I love the way you put it. Like, you know, do I have enough to afford to be me? That's one thing. The second thing, which I think is more important in retirement, which I kind of discussed in the book a little bit, it's not even the financial aspects, the non-financial aspect of retirement, which is like when you say, oh, to afford to be me, well, well, who are you? I mean this in a very sense. It's like, okay, if you're working full time, that's a big piece of your identity. And now if you stop working all of a sudden, like what are you going to do with those? Let's say you work 40 hours a week. What are you going to do with those 40 hours? And I think a lot of people hit retirement and they're like, wait, I didn't plan for this all this time. And like, what? who's my identity? Who am I? And so it really, I think, impacts people much more than the monetary things. I don't think the monetary issues are as big for most retirees. I think for most retirees, the issue is like, what am I going to do with my time? How am I going to enjoy my you know final few decades You know, and all that? So it's a little grim, but it's true. And you've got to kind of think about that. You kind of have to think about like, what do I really want to do? So solve that problem first and worry less about the monetary thing. I show some data in the book that only like one in six retirees are pulling down principal. Most of them live off their dividends and social security in the US. So that's promising. So I wouldn't worry as much about the monetary aspects, but more about like your actual life and what type of life do you want to live in retirement? That's the right question. And I think we're, we're living longer by and large, which is a good thing, yeah. but you could have 30, 40 years once you punch out from your job job to have to be able to afford that lifestyle, but also you want to enjoy it as well. So it, it's a it's such an interesting question. And there are some rules and some good tips in your book that make a lot of sense. Let's get personal with you. Biggest mistake you ever made investing, Nick, and as you learned about this, and, and you're always candid about it in your blog, but what tell our tell our listeners. I guess the the funny thing about saying what a mistake is, at one point I said it was buying coin. I bought it at like eight thousand. It was down at like four thousand or something, and then it went up to fifty two. So it ended up becoming a huge win. So vol is kind of one of those things. But I think the biggest mistake I made, I still haven't sold these yet, so that's not a mistake yet because I haven't sold. But I say don't buy individual stocks in the book. But if you want to do it for fun, you can. So I had like one percent of my net worth, which I think is fine. You know, one, you get up to five, maybe maybe ten percent at most if you really love it. But I try not to say beyond that. So I one percent of my net worth in these two individual stocks. I bought them, and they're both tech stocks, and they are down very badly. Both of them are down 50, 60 percent, whatever. And so 
I haven't sold them yet, so I can't say they're a mistake yet, but that might be my biggest mistake. I've done other stuff with individual stocks, but I ended up selling basically at the price I bought them at. And so I didn't really lose any money. I lost some opportunity costs because S&P was probably higher. But yeah, so that's probably my biggest mistake is just buying individual stocks and thinking I can play that game. You're talking to the man who bought Lehman Brothers at 19, thinking it could never go out of business and then doubling down when it went to eight. So I've made plenty myself and that's why I just keep it simple. You've written a terrific book here, but what's your favorite in- investing book? And I know you've got a few, but give us one or two, especially for the folks who really want to learn and go deep. The Intelligent Asset Allocator by William Bernstein. That's really good. If you want to think about asset allocations, very, a lot of his books are really good. Against the Gods, that's about another Bernstein. Peter Bernstein is so funny. They both have last name Bernstein. A lot of great books out there. Zwag's Your Money in Your Brain. That's really good for behavioral, like Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. That's just a great read. Most of your readers or listeners have probably heard of that already. So yeah, there's a lot of ones. And those are like investing specific. You start getting into personal finance. There's so many more like your money in your life. Get good with money. It's, it's Tiffany Leachy. So there's like a lot of, it depends. I, you need to be much more specific to like get me, but like those are kind of just a, a handful I would throw out there. Sure. We have those on our list of best investing in personal finance books on Investopedia. And we did have Morgan on the show here talking about his book, which is terrific. So great calls there. And folks, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Uh, Nick, you know, we're a site built on our investing terms. And that's why a lot of people come to us, at least for the first time. I got a feeling I know what your favorite investing term is, but I'd love to hear it from you. What's your favorite? What's the one that speaks to your soul? And, and why do you love it so much? So my favorite and least favorite at the same time is dollar cost averaging. And I will explain why, because the issue is, so the original, I think, definition of dollar cost averaging came from Benjamin Graham. And it was just this idea of just buying over time, right? As soon as you get money, you buy. And so that's kind of what, if you have a 401k or something, you're buying every two weeks or once a month, whatever you're getting paid and you're just buying. The issue with that term is that term has also been used to explain how people like invest in inheritance or you sell a business. You have a big amount of money. Let's say you have $100,000, right? And you're like, I'm not going to put all 100,000 in now. I'm going to spread it out over the next 12 months. So you're going to spend, you're going to put like what? $8,300 a month, right? For the next 12 months. And that's going to get you to like a hundred thousand. That's also called dollar cost averaging, but that's very different than like buying as soon as you have your money, right? Like if you're buying as soon as you have your money, you're technically investing right away, but saying, oh, I'm going to slowly get into the market. That is like the term I don't. So it's kind of a love, I have a love hate relationship with the term, but that's probably the most used term you know I have out there. And at the heart of it is really the message and the title of your great new book, Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick Majuli, you got to check out the blog too, folks, of Dollars and Data. And this book is tremendous. We're going to put a link to it so you can check it out in the show notes. And so good to have you back on The Express, Nick. Thanks for rejoining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me on again, Caleb. Appreciate it. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Stephen in Conroe, Texas, the county seat of good old Montgomery County, just north of Houston. Stephen suggests gas tax this week, and we like that term given President Biden's announcement last week that he's ordered the release of 1 million barrels a day from the nation's strategic petroleum reserves beginning May 1st for six months to ease gas prices. He did not commit, however, to pausing the gas tax, which some people have been hoping for since that would make a much bigger difference than a million barrels of oil on the market. Keep in mind, we consume about 20 million barrels of oil a day here in America, so a million is just a little more than a drop in the bucket. So what is the gas tax? Well, according to Investopedia here in the U.S., the gas tax is an excise tax that you pay when you fill up your vehicle. The federal government and states both impose gas taxes, with much of the revenue raised going towards fixing highways and other infrastructure projects. State gas taxes range from just under 10 cents to nearly 60 cents for a gallon of gas, although some states charge based on 
on the type of gas rather than on the amount of gas that you're buying. The federal government imposes a gas tax of 18.3 cents per gallon on gasoline and 24.3 cents per gallon on diesel right now. But where did this gas tax come from? Well, states have been levying gas taxes on gas since the early days of automobile travel in the United States. In 1919, a little over a decade after Henry Ford's Model T made owning a car affordable to the masses, Oregon became the first state to create a gas tax at one cent per gallon. Within 10 years, every state was collecting taxes. The federal government followed suit in 1932, establishing a nationwide gas tax of one cent per gallon to help pay for the Great Depression-related programs. Good suggestion, Stephen. Investopedia's famous socks are coming to you in Conroe, Texas. Well, the investing world lost a legend last week. Ed Johnson, known as Ned, ran Fidelity Investments from 1972 to 2014. He wasn't a household name, but Fidelity was and still is, and Ned had a lot to do with that. He helped create the Money Market Fund, which would invest in ultra-safe bonds and become an attractive investment option for customers looking to do better than cash. It would generate returns that match real-world interest rates, and at a time when bank interest was regulated, fixed by law at 5.25%, these Money Market Funds became very popular. Millions of customers began investing through these funds, helping build Fidelity into one of the largest asset managers in the world. Ned Johnson passed away last week at the age of 93. Well, from one investing legend to the next we go, as we're going to let Burton Malkiel take us out this week. The Princeton professor and the author of the seminal book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, explains in this video produced by the Academic All-Stars in 2017, why index investing is always better than stock picking. And the way I think you get it through the fog is not by picking one biotech company or another or one high-tech company, but by buying the whole shebang. And to get the right company, it's like looking for a needle in the haystack. And what I say is, buy the haystack. Buy the haystack. You gotta love it. Burton Malkiel, folks, if you haven't read A Random Walk Down Wall Street or the shorter version, it's worth it every single time. And that's our time this week, and it's always a good time being with you on this train. We're rolling on, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 